Hola, City Light. Como estas? Hey! All right. Uh, <laughs> some of y'all are still confused. You're like, wait a minute, is this one in Spanish? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I just got back from vacation in Mexico, so it's still in my head. Probably going to learn it sometime soon. Uh, how to actually speak Spanish. But, um, but no, it was good. We, we had a vacation. It was a great time, and uh, it wasn't a mission trip. I'm going to say that. It wasn't a mission trip, but we had vacation uh, in Mexico, and it was fun, and it was spiritual. Uh, it is spiritual for me to get away with my wife and invest in our marriage and in our friendship, and so it was, it was awesome. Um, it's also great to be back to see you guys. Uh, I've been, I was actually thinking about you uh, when we got back, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and some of the things that I was thinking about, though, is how much this truly is a family. City Light Church is a family. And as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, what we've seen is that this new family that God is forming and shaping and molding is beautiful. He's molding it into the image of his son. And I love the reality that not only did God save us as individuals, but he saved us into his redeemed family. Isn't that great? And so the first three chapters of this book in Ephesians, the first three chapters set the pace for like, this is who we are in Christ. We're no longer dead, but alive. We're no longer strangers, but united to Christ. And then the next three chapters, the ones that we've been walking through say, okay, that was your identity, but there, here is your activity. Christians, followers of Jesus being filled with the spirit in relationship with one another. And so something real quick before we dive into the text, I want to point out something this morning. Notice that the text that we're in and the one beforehand, uh, Paul starts the instruction to the person that that culture would have considered as lesser value. And so, so he addresses first the wives, then the husbands, and then he addresses the children, then the parents, and then he addresses the slaves, then their masters. And these are the people that were highly mistreated and devalued in the Roman culture, and I would argue every other area since then. So basically, by Paul starting with them, what he's doing, he's elevating them to their right valued place in the new family of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And so he told us in chapter 3 that as God's redeemed family, no one is less valuable. We are all of equal value. And so if you remember, these, all of these texts were prefaced with the reality of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in verse 21. And so it's a call to mutual submission out of the gospel, out of the love that we have in Christ. And, and, and what Paul is doing now is he's, he's basically showing us, hey, here's how that looks in an orderly fashion. So everybody doesn't have any assumptions. Let me break it down. And so that's what Paul's doing for us. And, and so most of us are tempted to take uh, Christianity or a walk with Jesus and categorize faith as it's a Sunday morning thing and a once a week Bible study thing. And so what Paul does, he squashes that and says, no, I have things for you in your, your marriage, in your relationship at the church. And what we're going to find today is that the gospel actually permeates our relationships at home and in our workplaces as well. And so I'd like to invite you to open your Bible, if you have it, to Ephesians chapter 6. And, and also, if you don't own a Bible, man, I'd love for you to take it as a gift uh, on your way out this morning. Or actually, it'll be this afternoon by the time I get done. Um, there's a bookshelf right there in the hallway. Uh, take one of those Bibles. We want you to have that. We want people to be able to walk uh, through the scriptures as we walk through them together as a family. So please take one of those as a gift. Um, what I want to start out by saying is this is a challenging text. And I'm not an expert in either one of these relationships. And, and quite frankly, I don't know if I'm worthy of preaching this. And so here's what I want this morning to look like. 
We're going to sit before God's word and God's Holy Spirit and allow him to guide us this morning as we walk through this text. Amen? All right. Let's look at the first three verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so the first redeemed relationships I want to, us to look at this morning is redeemed relationships at home. So when you first look at this text, you have to ask the question, when it says children, well, who is it referring to? So is it referring to people that are small that are children, or is it referring to those who are 18 and younger, or is it referring to anyone who has a parent? Well, that word actually is just simply offspring, and so it actually has implications for everyone in the room. When he says children, it's talking to anyone who has a parent. And so first, let's look at the, the, the as it pertains to, though, the kids that are underneath the home. And then we'll look at everyone else who, has, uh, who, who is a child of someone. Uh, so for the children uh, that live in our homes, this doesn't devalue them. Remember, I just said it elevates value. So this doesn't devalue them as, a, as if in your home there's this hierarchy of parents are more valued than children. If you recall, this is assuming that the previous passages that we talked about, there's a mutual submission in the family of God. And not only that, it assumes that the parents that are leading these children are being filled with God's Holy Spirit, okay? And so Paul here is calling children to obey their parents, not because it's the right thing to do or because we get it right all the time. Uh, it, the reason why he's calling children to obey their parents is because it pleases the Lord. Uh, the, the key phrase after that imperative obey is in the Lord, right? And so it implies that, that not simply that kids would do the right thing by obeying their parents, but the fact that they would do this out of the motivation that this is pleasing to the Lord. And so as a parent, myself, it's very difficult to get my kids to do this thing. Uh, part of it's because they're sinful, really sinful. Um, and secondly, because I don't always get it right either. I'm also sinful. Uh, so, so, but here's the thing. This right here still commands us and, and, and encourages us to have our children obey us. It is right and good for our kids to obey us. And they need to understand what it looks like in the future. They need to know what it looks like to obey authorities when they're no longer in our home. Now, the second part of this command is children are to honor their parents. Now, this is a huge command, right? Because if you look all the way back in the Old Testament, when God has uh, Moses bring down his Ten Commandments, so it's like morality 101, this is how you serve and honor God. Here are ten of them, simplistically speaking, and this one's in that. So you have commands like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body, and all your strength. Do not murder anyone and then honor your parents right in the midst of all of that, right? So that shows there's a, there's a weight to that reality. In fact, God saw it so important that in Deuteronomy 21, he told parents, man, if your kid continues to walk in disobedience and rebellion, you have the right to take your child in the middle of the city telling all the men to stone your child to death if they continue in their rebellion. So watch out, boys and girls. Just saying. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Do not show your kids that text when they disobey. It's probably not wise. Not to mention, I don't think there's ever an account of it actually happening. But what it is, is this instruction to say, this is a big deal to God. It matters that our kids obey. And remember, this is out of God's love, right? Whenever God has a command, it is out of his love and for our own joy 
that he gives us these commands. In fact, in verse 3, he even tells us that it might go well for them and that they will live long in the land. See, this isn't saying that if children do this, that they're going to live a long time and have a bunch of money. That's, that's not what it's implying. Just like any other command and any other thing that God says he's going to bring blessing, it's pointing us to the deep relationship with Jesus. The best thing for our kids is not for them to get a full-ride scholarship in the college or marry someone awesome. The best thing for our kids is that we train them up to walk faithfully with Jesus because he's going to give them life. He's going to love them. In part, the way they learn to do that is by obeying their parents and honoring their parents. So most of us in the room are not under the authority of a parent in a home, uh, as far as being children, but we are all someone's child, right? And, and so, so what is God's call for us as people who have parents? Even after we, we left our parents' home, what is the call for us? And I remember my freshman year when I came to know Jesus, uh, I had this question because neither one of my parents at the time were followers of Jesus. So I'm like, how do I honor them? Like, what does that look like for me to honor my parents who don't know Jesus? And I, I had a friend of mine graciously came in and told me, he said, it doesn't mean that I live the way that they want me to live. It doesn't mean that I, I walk in the trajectory that they want. So like, I'm not going to become a doctor or a lawyer because that's what my parents said so to do. And it also doesn't mean that you blindly obey them if it contradicts God. He said to honor them is the idea that you represent them when you leave their home. Which means honoring them is based upon our conduct, how we carry ourselves. How we walk with Jesus communicates how well we're actually honoring our parents. Uh, something I tell uh, couples when they get married is, is that... Um, your parents don't become the de facto counseling uh, for your marriage when you get married. In fact, the, the passage before says that you leave and cleave, not that you don't seek counsel for your parents, not that they're not maybe wise and, and that sort of thing, but, but it also, man, it, it's good to seek their insight, but I think it's, it's still God-honoring, it's still parent-honoring. When you seek counsel, that can be objective and point you to Jesus, right? Like, I'm a mama's boy. I promise you, my mom will take my side even when I'm wrong. I told her. She was like, oh, yeah, totally. Anyway, so it's like you don't bring them into those situations because they can't be objective, but it's still honoring that you would go and seek counsel that will point you to Jesus in the midst of that. So the, so the call to honor and obey is the call to, be, to the Christian life. When we honor and obey our parents, it is evidence that we honor and obey and know God. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because Jesus died for that. Jesus died so that ungrateful, disobedient children can become obedient, joyful children. So not only to our Heavenly Father do we get to obey, but we also get to honor and obey our parents. So, so when we call our children to this, we're calling them to practice what it looks like to obey Christ. So that's how children are to have redeemed relationships. How are parents to have redeemed relationships and, and parent their children? Well, let's look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents have a redeemed relationship and parent their children the same way Jesus parents us. Now, some of you are like, that's not what it says. Well... As my good friend Rafiki and, and Simba uh, had a conversation with Lion King, he said, look harder, right? It's a terrible way to do that. But anyway, uh, real quick note, <laughs> real quick note. If you are not a parent or you are a grandparent, this is not your time to check out. Just, just put it plainly, this is for you. I promise you, trust me, this has to do with you too. 
So, so what Paul does, he starts out with the negative or the natural form of parenting first, and then he leads us into the spirit-led Christ-like parenting uh, in the second half. So, so the natural way is to revoke our children to anger. And so the audience that he's speaking to in the, in the Roman culture, and even I would say the Jewish culture at the time, it was very normal for the husband, the father, to, to basically lead with an iron fist. I Meaning he's going to come in and dictate and domineer with his authority and without any desire or regard for the welfare of the children or his wife. And so Paul is clear here that father's authority does not allow him for unreasonable demands or structures that might drive his kids to anger or drive them to despair or resentment toward him. I got to confess something, though. I'm not good at this. This one's hard for me. Ask my kids. I, I like to control, and I like order. And so a lot of my time is spent ordering them around and trying to control them rather than loving and serving them out of the grace that's been given me. You see, it's easy to push so hard that your kids are pushed away instead of brought closer to you. A friend of mine and a mentor came to me one day and he said, man, do, do you want a relationship with your kids or do you simply just want them to do what you tell them? And in the moment, I'm like, I don't see how those things are at odds with one another. Uh, but, but they are, though. When, 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 I, when I conduct myself in a domineering or controlling fashion rather than filled with the spirit and gracious, they are at odds with one another. Now, I know some of us might be thinking, but I thought you just said it's good for our kids to obey us, and, and, and it is. It is very good. However, much of their obedience is very dependent upon our posture and leadership toward them. God-honoring obedience, as always, comes as a response, meaning that parents, we, we must have the expectation of what it means for our children to obey. Obey because I said so only works if the person being commanded to do something understands and believes that you love them, you are gracious toward them, and that you care about their absolute best. God is super clear about our response and obedience to him, right? We obey out of the gospel, the good news. We are motivated by God's love and by his grace. So in the same way, our children will be more motivated by our, in the same way, our children will be more motivated not by our severity, but by our charity toward them. By the way that we love them and give them grace. And I'll touch a little bit more on that here in a minute. So do you obey God because he has dominance over you or because you have experienced a loving and gracious relationship with him? In verse 4, it says that we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, so again, provoke, push down, bring up, lift up encourage is what he's giving. And he says there's two ways that, 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 that I see this play out in the discipline and instruction of your children. So, so here, here's these terms. The discipline and instructions are terms of teaching. So, so even the root word, if you look at that word discipline, the root of that is disciple, which means learner or follower. So discipline and instruction are not to get someone to do what you tell them to do. In fact, it's the help to lead them, to, to teach them that, so that they might learn. And it's, it's very helpful to understand that discipline is, more, is ultimately correction. It is not punishment and it's not punitive. When, when I'm disciplining my kids, I'm demonstrating to them, this is how God disciplines me. 
Hebrews 12 says, if, if you love your kids, you'll discipline them. And if you don't discipline them, you clearly don't love them. But in that, here's what it says, is that how you discipline your kids is an example of how God disciplines you. And so, so I'm going to say this again. I think, I think we really need to get this. How we discipline our kids will give them a picture of what to expect when God disciplines. This is what a redeemed relationship looks like. We, we point to the goodness of Christ. And so how does God discipline you? Think about it. Does the way we discipline our kids rightly picture God's discipline of us? Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we're disciplined, Jesus is correcting us, right? It's not a punitive thing. It's not a punishment because the punishment for our sin was nailed to the cross and it's finished complete, right? Jesus says it is finished. He rose from the grave to show us that it was done. And so when we experience something hard, when we experience the discipline of the Lord, it's not a punishment. It's not punitive, but it's corrective. It's showing us and pointing them back to him, right? It's not because he's mad at you. God's not, not sitting and seeing that you do something wrong. And he's like, oh, I'm going to get you. That, that's not his heart. He graciously corrects us. And many times th- 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 there are natural consequences to our decisions, and he allows that to happen to us. And that, that's, that's a part of that discipline. But more often than not, our felt need to punish our kids looks more like the law and less like the gracious relationship we have with Jesus. We want to we, we wanna correct our kids. yes but because we love them. Our role is to nourish them, to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, not to punish them. And so if we're honest, a lot of us, though, we either err on one side of the ditch or the other, right? Like we either err on the side of discipline or we err on the side of teaching. And I think Paul doesn't really give us permission to err on either side here. We must be consistent with our kids or they won't understand it. Remember, we represent Christ to them. And so here's the thing. I think parents in the room, when we are training up our children in the way they should go, we have to remember that they're going to go, right? Like they're going to leave our house and the way we discipline and instruct those children is going to reflect to them when I'm outside of my mom's house and, 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 and under the stewardship of me and Jesus alone, It's going to tell them how Jesus functions in their life. And so when we correct our kids' behavior, we have to see that there's a difference between being a child, being childish, and disobedience. You see, we can can be patient with childish behavior. We can tolerate it for a little bit. But disobedience, we can't, right? We, We have to see the massive difference between a kid who is spirited and has high energy or lacks emotional control or understanding and a kid who's just stubborn and functioning out of willfulness, right? Like a kid who's spirited and has high energy, we want to we want to we want to push that, we want to engage that, we want to lift that up, encourage that, right? I have some spirited kids, and I promise you, they will be leading your kids later on. Like we want to encourage that; they're going to be great leaders. I have kids who are extremely emotional as well. And in that emotion, it's my opportunity, my wife and I's opportunity to come alongside them and say, here's what it, how we healthily steward our emotions. Here's how we helpfully steward those emotions. It's not a disobedience. It's like they don't understand how to do that yet. 
And then the, the willful or just stubborn trying to push their way, yes, we need to correct, we need to redirect that, no question about it. So references to discipline in the Bible are holistic terms, uh, which, which don't require punishment, okay? When you see that word discipline, don't think punishment. In fact, here, here's what another author says. It's a suitable and unpleasant deterrence of disobedience. Whether being removed from the situation to sit in disgrace on the stairs or withdrawing that mobile phone or, or other privileges. You see that? It's a bigger picture than one thing. It's, it's a holistic view of your child when it comes to discipline, which is correction. So, so if one of the forms of discipline for your family is spanking, I, I want to encourage and caution you. Consider if you're reacting in anger. If so... That's not corrective. Are you self-controlled? If not, it's probably not being filled with the Spirit. If there's a mark left, that's abuse. And finally, as the Spirit of all discipline from the Lord, it must be restorative and not pointless or confusing to our kids. Does that make sense? We have to be willing to confess and embrace this reality that we have the inability to change our child's heart. Like, that's God's job. We can't argue. We can't threaten. We can't punish our way into our kid's submission to God. I mean, it didn't work for you and me, right? Like, there, there's, that's not how we came to know Jesus. It wasn't by this, hey, I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. No, it was by his grace, by his affection, by his love to us, by his correction of us that we come to know him. And so the same thing works for our kids. Only the Spirit can change a sinful heart. Only God can cause true heart change. And so we have to rely on that, on the fact that God himself is the one that will change our child's heart. Can we spend more time on our knees than we do with our hands? Let me pull back for a second and give some, some application before we go to the next point. Parents, we do need to call our kids to obedience. The way Jesus calls us into the same thing. He calls us with both grace and truth and the gospel to obey. And grace doesn't mean that you ignore your kid's sin. In fact, grace is calling them on their sin so they know the realities that, that sin is corrupt. It is, leads to death. We call sin, sin, just as God calls sin, sin in our hearts. And if you don't have kids living in your home, we have to remember that this passage assumes that everybody in the body of Christ is a family. And so, and so as a family, we're actually all responsible for the upbringing, the discipleship of the children that are sitting downstairs and that are sitting in this room. So, so, so when we do parent commissioning, for instance, we don't just commission the parents, we commission the entire church for the, the discipleship, influence, and stewardship of our kids. So when you see a mom or dad struggling to get kids up the stairs and into the building, offer a hand. Like, take a second, look at them and say, oh, I should probably help. Right? Like, there's a stewardship. If you're in it, I'm not even going to say if you. You better be. In a city group, when you see kids that are not your kids, yes, I'm promoting city groups. It's okay. Uh, and you see kids, engage them. Get to know them. Remember their names. Like, get to know these kids because they are a part of your family. I'm going to go back to parents. All of this means that we as parents must be gracious to those who are trying to serve us, right? So when they come and, and offer to help, receive that as we've received the service of Christ, right? We've received his gracious gift. It's 
more blessed to give than to receive, right? So don't steal their blessing. Allow them to serve from a gracious heart. Amen? All right. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so the, the, the last relationship that I want to look at is the redeemed relationship at work. The redeemed relationships at work. So Paul here now addresses the relationship between a bondservant and their master. So let me give you a little bit here. When you see that bo word bondservant here specifically, it's the Greek word doulos. Simply translated, doulos is the word slave. So, okay, modern day Western thinking Americans United, live in the United States that puts some tension in your heart, right? Like when you hear that word slave, that brings about a little bit of a tension in your heart. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to compartmentalize a little bit the slavery of the Roman Empire and the slavery of the last 300 or so, 400 years in the United States, okay? So let me, let me kind of outline a few of the differences. One, in Paul's day, it is estimated that anywhere from 33 to upwards of 60% of the inhabitants of Rome were slaves. In fact, slaves owned slaves who owned slaves, and so it was kind of common there. Slavery was not based on someone's race or ethnicity. Actually, some, some slaves were basically prisoners of war. Some of them, uh, many of them, were men and women who, who needed to pay off debt, and so therefore they put themselves in slavery. And then a lot of them even, they, they, they were impoverished so deeply that in order to survive, they said, man, I, I better do this. And then also, there were certain rights under Roman law that slaves had, and you could normally assume that a slave would be released after seven years or at least by the age of 30. Now, I want to be clear on something, though. None of this implies that slavery is desirable or condoned by God. This was, this, was, this was and still is a corrupt system that is not pleasing to the Lord. Paul actually tells Christians to gain their freedom, if, if at all possible, in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, because it's not desirous. And in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.10, he condemns slave traders. And so don't miss this. Paul is addressing both slaves and slave masters with an assumption they're sitting right next to each other in the church, which means they're brothers and sisters in Christ, fellowshipping in equity together, and they're, they're worshiping Christ together as brothers and sisters, as the redeemed family of God when he's talking to them. You see, historically, masters ultimately suffered together with their slaves when the Roman Empire came in and started persecuting Christians. And because of that, because they were serving together in equity, what ultimately happened is they flipped that empire upside down by that redeemed family. So have that in mind that, no, the Bible does not endorse slavery whatsoever. So, so what's this passage speaking to us based on what we know about these slaves in Paul's day? Well, slavery was a, a foundational part of the economy and the society that they were in. 
right? The Roman and in, in, in the whole ancient world, that was a part of their economy, that was a part of their society at the time. So Paul here isn't addressing the issue of slaveholding, but what he is addressing is how, as a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, you ought to conduct yourself in the economy and the society that you're in. So, so we all have some sort of job or role in the economy or the society that we're in, right? And so we all have jobs. Like, that's, that's that reality. We all have jobs that we work. And so some of us, we're students. Some of us are lawyers, teachers, daycare providers, insurance agents, stay-at-home parents, whatever that might be. We all have jobs. And we all have jobs that God has given us. And Paul's telling us, no matter what role you play in that society or economy, you have one boss and one master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so listen here. Did you know that your job is sacred? Like the place or the, the thing that you do for a living is sacred. There, there is no divide of this is a secular job and this is a sacred job. No, no. God actually doesn't have that compartmentalization for us. We can't compartmentalize and say, okay, that's God's time on Sundays and then this is just work time when I'm at work. No, no, no. There is no compartmentalization. God is in it and with us in the midst of those things. In fact, work was not created after the fall but before it. So it's a part of God's natural good design for us is to work. It is a good gift from him. And so whatever that vocation is that God has created for you, that's where he's called you for his good purpose. Any job we have is a ministry of Jesus and can be glorifying to God while we do it. Yes, there are perversions of that, clearly. But this is a good God or anything that he has called you into. And he says, man, work your best. You want to summarize this whole section? Do your best at your job. And so here's, here's some, some attributes that Paul lists out as, as we walk through this, this uh, particular section and a redeemed relationship with work by being filled with the Spirit. So, so let's look at it. Uh, verse 5, basically he says we have to come with a humble and generous heart. So when you see those words fear and trembling, they're expressions of honor and respect for the authority. Now I know all of us at some point or another, or maybe even right now, have bosses that we're like, I don't want to honor nor respect that person at all. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. However, God does not give us the free pass to not respect them. In fact, he doesn't give us a free pass to slack off at work. The culture in the world around us says, man, if you have permission to complain about your boss on a consistency, you have the, the opportunity to mock and disobey them, but the Bible doesn't give us that permission. We're to work with sincerity. We're to work hard. And like a good father, he actually tells us why we would do that. He says in verse 5, as you would Christ. You see that? He's always pointing to Jesus, right? And so when we're doing this, we are honoring and working in generosity for the Lord. If your boss is intolerant and frustrating, what better way to display the gospel than to take that and still show them love and affection and appreciation? Because believe me, you weren't that pretty when God met you. Amen? All right, next section. Uh, verse 6 and 8, not for man's approval, but for God's good pleasure. When we do this, according to these verses, it's not for the attention of our employers, but for the honor and the glory of our God. And he's with us in that work, right? Like our motivation for work can't be exclusively our bosses to see us do good work or to climb up some sort of ladder or maintain a bigger salary. It has to find its beginning, its middle, and its end motivation in Christ. We're not owned by people and we're not owned by ourselves. We are owned by Jesus. And so, so here's why this matters. 
If you're working at a job for your boss's approval, your joy in that work will ebb and flow, right? Because their approval of you will ebb and flow with it. People are finicky, right? And so if, if it's based on that, then I'm sorry, it's not going to be a very enjoyable career for you. Your joy will constantly ebb and flow if it's dependent upon that person. But if you're working hard in response to Jesus' finished work on the cross, well, all of a sudden that joy abounds, right? It doesn't have it in. It never changes. God is pleased with you on a consistent basis. So, so if we shift our motivation from, from gaining a boss's approval, but instead to enjoying God's already approval on us, it'll be much more enjoyable. And, and the last one in verse 9, is treating people with equity and grace. You see, Paul commands the, the masters or the bosses, so to speak, to do the same thing as the servants slash employees, but then he adds a line, stop your threatening. You see, the world's form of leadership is fear, right? To, to domineer or dominate and threaten individuals, but I'm here to say that the Bible says that that's against the gospel, that is not in step with the gospel for us to lead out of fear, lead out of threatening. Now, hear this. We are, we are able to fire people, okay? Like, that, that's, that, that's a part of work, but we're not able to hold that over someone's head. In fact, in this context, the master, the boss, represents Christ. And if we represent Christ, well, that's not how Christ treats us. He doesn't threaten that man. If you do that again tomorrow, you're out of the family. See you later, Susie. Right? Like he, he just doesn't function that way. And so if that's the case, if we are a boss, if we have employees, Paul gives us the, this responsibility to say, no, you reflect Christ to these people. You can't hold their job over them. And the good news is that our master, our boss, Jesus, never does that to us. He graciously serves, graciously corrects, graciously directs. So though we don't probably fit into the category of slave in the sense that we're not owned by humans, however, we're all slave to something. Uh, Romans 6 is really clear. It says you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And so if Jesus isn't the sinner of your life, if he's not the apple of your eye, if he doesn't hold the keys to your heart, you have been enslaved by something or someone less satisfying and loving than him. Every slave master except Jesus will fail you over and over and over again. Every slave master except for Jesus will fail you. And every slave master will never work for your satisfaction. In fact, uh, when you fail, that master has no power to forgive you, has no power to, to let you set you free, but instead will give you misery and shame. But that's not Jesus. He alone can satisfy. He alone has paid the ultimate price for our sin, and he alone is the perfect master. To be a slave to him, to be a slave to Jesus, brings about grace and joy and mercy and rest. In fact, he says it in Matthew. He says, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a promise that if Jesus is your master, that's what you gain. And if you are in the room and, and you are a follower of Jesus, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to God in righteousness. We get to be a part of God's work of seeing other slaves from sin set free from their bondage. We get to be a part of seeing God at work. We get to see God at work in our homes and in our workplaces. In the relationships between parents and children, between slaves and masters, or for our context, employees and employers, 
that relationship with Christ radically changes those relationships. It redeems them in how we treat them, how we submit to authority. It changes all of those things. You see, the gospel permeates through every single aspect of our life, and every relationship is an opportunity to worship Christ, to become more like him, and to point others to him. That's what we get. And so part of that, for the last 2,000 years, um, we've been able to point each other to Jesus, right? And we do that by, by uh, take, partaking in the family meal of communion, right? So, so this, as we take the bread and, and we, we dip it in the juice and we consume it, what we're marking is like, yes, God, Jesus did in fact die, and I believe that in my heart that he has made me a part of his redeemed family. Now, because that is a family meal, I would ask you that if you are not a follower of Jesus, please, please don't partake. It's nothing against you. In fact, the Bible has warnings against doing those kinds of things, partaking in something that you actually don't believe. But what I would encourage you, man, I want to invite you, hey, would you follow Jesus? Or would you at least come and ask somebody in the room that does take communion a question? Ask them, ask them, man, what does it look like to walk with Jesus? I have questions that I need answered. Man, we would love to invite you into those conversations. But please, if you're not a part of that, please don't partake. Amen? Let's pray.